This is the Master of Cinema Cast. My name is Joachim. And my name is Tom. And today we will be discussing The Passion of Joan of Arc by Dreyer. And today with us we have Joe Johnson from the previous Watching the Directors podcast and also the Watching Theology podcast. Thank you so much for joining us, Joe. Oh, it's my pleasure. Absolutely. You're working now as an English teacher in uh, Central Washington University, correct? Yes, uh, Ellensburg, Washington. So teaching a lot of composition classes, a lot of intro to lits. And then I'm also working on a writing degree. So one of these days I'll be a real writer. Does <laughs> <laughs> it take a degree before you it, become it a real writer? Is that it? You have <laughs> to have it on the wall. You can't just write a, a massive selling book. You have to have that degree on the wall before you can officially become a writer. Is that how it works? I, I, that's the other option. That's track two. But how did you get into like films? Where did that interest come from? Uh, a film is something that you know. All growing up, it was it was mostly I was in the same stuff that every other child of the seventies was. You know, it was after you see Star Wars, you you're just fascinated by what movies can do. But uh, it was it wasn't until I was an undergraduate that I, I really got exposed to cinema as an idea. That that film was not just pure entertainment; that it actually has an art form. Uh, and then from there, it was uh, I, th I think once I, I met my wife and married her, she was watching Hitchcock and she was watching a lot of old classic films, and we would just trade films back and forth or watch things together. Uh, and 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 I think really it was is kind of out of the marriage that that we we just found films was something that was central to both of us and 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 grew in it more as academic and, and, and conceptual and, and, and just, of course, enjoy the entertainment aspects of film too. So it just progressed as you got older and shared these things. It's nice to hear that you had a marriage based on films as well. <laughs> it's, it's, it's highly important. <laughs> Some people, you know, love uh, other people film and, you know, hopefully you blend the two. You can blend the two, yeah. right? Yes. Get there in the end. And you, you two started a podcast together, um, watching the directors. Yeah, that was actually our second podcast. We did a, we did one for a few months, and I'm trying to remember what it was even called. <laughs> and it was it was kind of showing our ignorance, where we went straight for the ten best films of all time, and on that list, one of them was Lord of the Rings. So it, it was we really grew out from there, and then we decided to look at uh, watching the directors because I, I started to get more interested in the idea of auteurism. And, and so it was a place that Melissa and I could force ourselves to cram, you know, 10 movies in in a week and, and have some sort of purpose to go to it. But this was back in 2007? I, I think right about there, 2007, probably. I, I lost track. Kind of where did you discover podcasting and what made you go into like recording your own voices? That, that seems like quite a step in that day. And especially for a husband and wife. Right, right. That was one of the things I loved about Apostle, the kind of the unique kind of the fact that it was like a husband and wife and not just two friends. It was kind of like that was something I always kind of like gravitated towards it for that reason. It was quite interesting to me. Well, I worked at a newspaper at the time, and one of the things that I did, I spent a lot of time off in the in the press room doing pre-press. So I, Melissa bought me an iPod, and I just would, I, I was in love with the idea of transporting radio programs to being portable. And, and I used to commute to seminary before that, and I would rent books on tape or the great classes. So I, I always loved the idea of the transportability of audio, that you can, can carry all these ideas with you everywhere you want. So podcasting was pretty new, 2005, 2006. Uh, and and uh, got into it right away as something I enjoyed. But I had worked in radio in uh, when I was in college, and, and so I had some experience on the technical audio side of things, and we just decided to mix things together and, and, and see what happened, uh, and, and, and it's evolved. Yeah, I mean, speaking from a personal perspective, I mean, I didn't get into podcasting until well, – I didn't get into listening to them until 2007. 
and watching the directors. It was one of the first ones that I remember. There was kind of two podcasts that I listened to. There was ones which I listened to and never listened to again. And there were other <laughs> ones which, which, which stuck. And watching the directors was one of those. And I remember one of the things I used to like about it um, was I used to find myself disagreeing with you both quite a lot of the time. I remember there was a Ridley Scott one, I think, where you said, like, Gladiator was his best film. And I was like, shut up, is it? And then it kind of like, but when you have that reaction and yet kind of, I think it's one of the hallmarks of a really great podcast is when you can kind of have that kind of, you can disagree with what people are saying, but be so interested in what they're saying anyway. And it was kind of, that was one of the things I, I mean, I was saying off air, but I remember on a long haul flight just loading up with watching the directors and absolutely <laughs> caning through it. And uh, yeah, it was, it was, it, it was a really genuinely great podcast. I mean, are the episode's still about, can you, can people still get hold of them? I don't know. I have them all saved on a hard drive somewhere. Okay. So, I, yeah, I mean, you can you can email me and I'll, I'll be happy to or, or go to you guys and, and I'll be happy to forward those on. I think I have them still archived. And I will retract anything about Ridley Scott. I, I, I will pull back to Alien being his greatest film. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and then uh, – but but the thing was about we were growing through podcasts and by the end we got done with that, we really learned a lot from film. So it was it was kind of this film school that we forced ourselves to go through. And by having those deadlines, we really had to expose ourselves to things that we wouldn't have seen otherwise. Hmm. And, and and that's and, and I found myself talking about disagreeing. I was listening to your life podcast, and and, uh, and Hitchcock is sacred in our house. And, and there was like, <laughs> <laughs> so so was, I thought to myself, oh man, I'm not going to let Melissa to listen to this one. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's nothing better. I mean, I occasionally get the odd really vitriolic email about something that I've said or done <laughs> on, on podcast. And it I, it really, I, I'm so always so pleased when I get those types of emails. You could get the, you know, obviously you get the nice ones coming through, but sometimes you get something like, you've offended me on a personal level because of what you said about this. <laughs> I'm like, get in, mission accomplished. It's always, I'm always pretty pleased with myself. It's interesting. My, my first experience with a podcast was also watching the directors. And I remember... I was uh, looking for some stuff on David Fincher. I think I was writing a paper in mm. a university and uh, I came uh, looking for just different different views on David Fincher and I found your podcast and the episode you did. And that also led me to another podcast, the um, Hollywood Saloon. Uh, oh, so they, yeah, yeah. So those two podcasts, they definitely shaped my uh, listening experience. Yeah, I think I did like the eight hours of James Bond through the Hollywood Saloon myself. So. <laughs> and funny enough, it's always that episode. I was never a huge James Bond fan until I listened to that that episode of the Hollywood mm. Saloon. Those eight hours, and I kind of kind of got really into them for some reason. I think that was the thing about the Hollywood Saloon. We're not really allowed to talk about it anyway because it's a just <laughs> podcast now. And then slight slight kind of politics behind it, but no, it was uh, yeah, that was another kind of one. Of the, it was what you know this and I mean, did you ever listen to Cinema Slave as well with Joe Barlow? That was another one of my. You know, I hadn't heard that one, so I, I think the only one that I, I've consistently never backed away from was Film Spotting, and I, I can I really do enjoy that one. And, and but, you know, I pulled away from it and started listening to all kind of religious podcasts or all sports podcasts. And I find myself getting back into film podcasting recently. What made you kind of diverge into watching theology podcasts? Yeah, watching theology, we, we had some uh, friends that we knew on that were at a religious broadcasting and they wanted to integrate watching the directors with their their programs. And Melissa and I talked about it and we wanted to keep watching the directors autonomous. And so watching theology was a, was an idea in that which we could create something that if we lost it, it wouldn't kind of break our hearts. And and so that's how watching theology came about. So it allowed us to kind of orient more towards the audience that we were working with there that were coming from a religious background, a lot of people, or would discover watching theology from the religious perspective, while at the same time maintaining the integrity of watching the directors. 
And, and so that's kind of how that approach. And then uh, after a while, Melissa just got so busy, she started teaching and I tried to take it solo or find partners and it eventually just fizzled out. And unfortunately, I, I but I, I, I really enjoyed that project myself. So uh, getting on to the film at hand uh, today, uh, your relationship with Dreyer, kind of where did that fascination start for you? It started with this film, with Passion of Joan of Arc. It, it was, I was, it, there was a Hollywood video in town and we, this is on VHS and we see this film with this kind of provocative flame-covered cover. It was a white, I remember it being a white case with a flame-covered cover, mm. a flame-colored cover. And uh, I thought, well, let's check this out. And, and I'd never seen anything like it. And so eventually got into some of his other films like Ordet and uh, Ordet is one of those films where I watched with about four or five friends and uh, they they didn't talk to me for a couple of days afterward. <laughs> but uh, there was something about Dreyer that was so provocative, so thoughtful and and so difficult at the same time that I thought this is what film can do. Mm. And Tom, what about you? How did you get into Dreyer? Um, it came about from when... I I think I bought the Criterion edition of this film, and like a lot of a lot of those Criterions, I've because it was kind of like an addiction. Well, my Criterion is an addiction. My name's Tom, and I'm a, I'm a Criterionaholic. I think that's the way of putting it. But <laughs> I um yeah, I, I bought it and I never watched it. Like I mean, I I've only w- probably watched about half of the half of all the ones I've ever bought. And this was one of those I thought, right, I'm stop buying them and start watching them. And <laughs> this and, and I ran and I thought, and it, I think it came about. I, I read an article about it in Sight and Sound, and it was kind of one of these "it's the greatest films of all time" type things. And I don't really necessarily agree with those types of lists in a way. I, I they I think they try and they, they seem to kind of provoke kind of the wrong types of debates. But I thought, right, I'll just dig it out and watch it. And I watched it, and it was just about. I remember an hour and a half and I was absolutely mesmerized by it um, for so many reasons, for mainly because it's just like purely kind of filmmaking reasons. I was absolutely obsessed with it. And then obviously I realized that having kind of, um, I, I already own quite a few of these films through buying them on kind of like Master Cinema and Criteria and I kind of started to kind of get really into them. And he's not one of those directors who I, I, I don't think I've seen all of his films, so I don't think I can kind of put him in kind of like my favorite director's list or anything like that or kind of like preach too much about him as to how much I adore his films. But I seem to, the Passion of Joan of Arc has has kind of stayed with me ever since I've seen it and kind of watching it again today. um, It just, it just amazes me how good a film this is. And it's, it just totally, it just stands out from anything I've seen before. And to to this day, I I don't, I can't think of a cinematic experience where I kind of, I, I felt that, kind of intense about something whilst I've been watching it and I mean I kind of know kind of your from your point of view and um, this is a film which I think you're probably itching to go on about for quite a while so I'll hand over to you so you can wax lyrical <laughs> well this is my favorite film of all time and that's for wow. several reasons the first time I watched it was at film studies the first year and uh, you can just imagine that I- I remember you talking about your film experiences, Tom, where you are going to the cinemas and you're, you're watching kind of, you're watching films in more ideal conditions than I were, certainly. I was sitting in like on tree benches and looking at a kind of light projected image and not surround sound, uh, not at all. So these viewing conditions were pretty crap as well as the intertitles. They were in French, so I couldn't understand really what was what was being said 
but I had been to France for a month and I picked up some of the language so I could I could kind of understand what was going on. People around me, they were not really interested in watching a black and white silent film, but I I became completely transfixed by this film and it wasn't it wasn't like the first silent film I've ever seen, but it was the first one where I noticed that it struck an emotional chord with me, and I, I was just simply in awe of the technical prowess that Dreyer shows in this film. And it's such a simple story, and yet it is so multi-layered and so many nuances throughout the film that I knew that I had to revisit it at some point. And then the second time I watched it, it was like, I'm not a religious person, but that was a religious experience I watched it in a uh, church in the cathedral in Trondheim in Norway. It was a film festival, so I was working there. And they had set up uh, a projection inside the cathedral with a live orchestra inside and four opera singers performing the Voices of Light soundtrack. And that was Mm. just an experience I will never forget. And it also kind of hurts my viewing experience of the Masters of Cinema version because the Voices of Light soundtrack, that's so embedded to the film uh, in my eyes. I I completely agree. I I, I think that was the one thing that was really missing from the Masters of Cinema because that that, that piece, it it really was what just made it all come together. Mm -hmm. And we can talk about the music later on, but... um, Certainly for the, uh, I think it's the 20 frames per second. Uh, I can't remember the, the one that's one hour and 20 minutes. Yeah. So watching that version now, it was a completely different experience. But I remember kind of how I felt when I was watching it with that soundtrack and just how engaged I was and how emotional I get every time I watch this. You're just picking up these nuances in the performances, how he kind of structures the story, how he cuts from one shot to another. It's just, I think that uh, Sean Cocteau, he said that it was like a historical document uh, from an era where cinema didn't exist. And I, I really have to agree in that it, it it feels like a timeless movie that is outside of time. And it's something that will never age for me and never deteriorate, but it will always remain like a pristine and perfect film for me. I completely agree with what you're saying about it um, in terms of kind of timelessness. And to kind of give you an idea, I recently watched The Artist for the first time. Mm. And I watched it and I was acutely aware as I was watching it, I was watching what I could kind of consider a fake silent film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And don't get me wrong, I really enjoyed The Artist. I had a great time. I kind of laughed and I, I it, it was fun, if you know what I mean. And I thought, yeah, that was, that was I enjoyed it. But I kind of thought to myself, I don't really understand why they decided to do this. It's a homage to silent cinema, obviously, and I just thought it was quite disposable. And the more the kind of as the days went by, I was kind of like, yeah, yeah, it had a novelty value to it, but it was pretty, I don't know, disposable to me in a way. And when I was watching the Passion Journey up today, I completely agree with what you were saying, Eurekim, because I think this is a film which I don't think it will ever get old or seem out of place in the context of the term cinema. I think it's it's such an integral film to kind of the whole kind of over of what cinema is and that in the fact that you're watching it and it just seems like it is it's its own thing entirely and is both kind of totally modern and also a silent film from the classic era of silent film it's somehow 
it just manages to transcend any kind of notion that it's from a certain part or time of cinema, as it were. Mm-hmm. And if, if, you know, I mean, when I was watching it, I just thought to myself, it's still, it's so evocative. And I, I mean, I think I would be lying, and I, I know we've discussed it before, I think I'd be lying entirely if I said I was some kind of silent cinema aficionado. I, I, I do watch a lot of silent films, and I... But I, I don't, I, I don't have kind of have that kind of like um, passion for it that a lot of people do. But but watching this film, it's like I don't even notice that it's a silent film. Mm. If, if if you know, I mean, I, I just kind of sit there and I'm watching, it and I just absorb it as a piece of pure cinema. And it, it's I it's a spellbinding piece of art. It, I mean, it's it, it's incredible. And my favorite film of all time is Heat by Michael Mann. But this film mm. is like a thousand times better. Heat, but yeah, and that's the kind of the crazy thing about it. And I, and I sort of like thinking, why don't like, you know, why isn't it my favourite film? Well, yeah, I could probably go into that, but it, it's it's just it, it's a masterpiece. I don't like saying that. I don't like kind of labelling things. Actually, it seems so kind of um, grandiose and so kind of hyperbolic. But this film truly is. It, it is uh, a miracle that we're actually watching the version that we're watching, uh, because this version was discovered right here in Norway. In a mental. Don't start, hang, hang on! Don't start taking credit for finding this on a national basis. Yeah, <laughs> hang on! Wait a minute. <laughs> this was found in a clo- in a closet in a mental institution here in Norway, in uh, Dikemark, uh, here in Oslo. And before that, there were like several censored versions of various lengths. And um, after this was discovered, it was kind of found that this was the uh, final version that Dreyer had sent out uh, to. I think it was some sort of professor or someone that had a real interest in these religious types of films and texts that kind of uh, he uh, i think he was sent a copy of it and then it was just kind of uh, stowed away but uh, the archbishop of paris and the government they had kind of put down pressure on the film uh, for it to be cut down and the film even though it was cut it was a critical success when it was released in 28 but it wasn't this financial one but just the fact that this film it was discovered in a closet in pristine condition it it just builds to that kind of that kind of notion that this is a special kind of film that we are watching it's it's a privilege to watch the version that we are yeah especially i think one of the things that's interesting with the master of cinema's disc with the in- inclusion of the 50s version is it the deluca version yeah, uh, you you would realize that this would be a completely forgotten film if it weren't mm-hmm. for that eighty two. I think it was nineteen eighty two when the rediscovery, because that fifties ver- version. Uh, oh, okay. Oh, okay. That that version uh, it turned me off so quickly. It felt like just a standard fifties studio film that had a kind of it was designed for Sunday school classes and confirmation classes. Uh, it had no heart to it, and which is remarkable to think it's using it's building largely off the the same source material. Uh, and and how is it the dryer takes it and does something that's so transcendent? I think is what both of you are saying. And and I can look at this and and see how does somebody take the same material, edit together, and put something that's so stale and forgettable? Mm-hmm. Uh, it it just there's something magical about that that rediscovered version that we're on the right side of history to be able to see, especially to see as as beautifully preserved as or restored as it is. Uh, it, it really is remarkable, and I, I don't know if what you do with a, a show when you have three people who will call, come to the consensus that this is a, a tran- <laughs> you know a transcendent piece of filmmaking that uh, that that really is is hard 
to classify as anything other than art, uh, but but that but it's true, and and there's so much here to to discuss. But but I'm I'm incre- incredibly thankful to to have had people find this and and preserve it and 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 send it back out to the world. It was a testament as well to the power of editing, and you, you often see an editor's name in on on you know, credits, but you don't really know what they actually do, really, and it just shows. What you know, when someone you know two different materials, and like you say, like one's kind of this sort of like dull sort of studio affair, and the other one's this kind of absolute masterpiece that we're all kind of swooning over, and it's it it, it just seems so crazy that you can get two things like that out of the same material. It, it's it blows my mind really. I mean, I don't know if you. I mean, I've seen like a very early version of Star Wars, like a kind of you know before the kind of the the, the well, a George Lucas edit, and it's terrible. <laughs> it's, it's just absolutely it's almost unwatchable and then when you watch the final version you're like oh my god you know this is they kind of took this film and turned it into that and uh yeah it, it's i think it's in the intricacies of filmmaking really I'm, if anything i kind of like I'd, I'd like to kind of see more about that kind of process on on the on the special features which there isn't but um yeah I, I was consciously aware of that and i always I, I always feel a bit strange when you get a film and there's so many different versions of it hmm. and you're never quite sure it's like blade runner <laughs> you know, I, 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 I just don't know what one to watch so i just set up with the final if this is what ridley scott wants me to watch i'll watch this one and it, yeah, I, yeah it's like you know, the directors the uh I said the studio cut it's like what well, you know, we'll go back to that and i sometimes if i want to watch a film i'm going to watch the version which i think is the most complete version or the most kind of closest to what the director was intending but with this one i've gone back and i've watched i've watched almost every version of it and yeah it, like, like you say Joe, it's, it's two films almost in, in some of those versions that you get and uh it, it kind of it amazed me because I, I can't think of a reason why I'd go back and watch the kind of the fifties version or anything like that, if other than just kind of teach myself a few lessons about the art of editing. <laughs> I've I've been afraid to to visit the Loduka version just in terms of uh, I don't want it to ruin my experience, uh, yeah. and also I I've, I've also been afraid to watch this film too many times just because I don't want it to lose its power over me. Mm-hmm. So uh, going to preparation for this episode, I've, I've only watched it like one and a half times. Well, this is, this is quite interesting, actually, because I was thinking this when I was watching The Passion. Mm-hmm. Watching it. This is the third time I think I've ever watched it. And I sat there and I thought, God, why don't I watch more films that I absolutely love and revere more often? Why is it I will go back and watch... I've seen 2012 three times. I'm going to put my hands up and say it now. <laughs> I enjoy I enjoy that film. Right? I, I, I can sit there. I can sit there and I can enjoy that film. And I, I can openly admit I like it. And I know it's awful. But I, I can I could happily now go and watch 2012. I'll be happy. I, I would be very very contented. And I sat there watching. I think why don't you watch these types of films more often? You idiot. You love them. You know why don't? You? And it's completely right. You know because I don't want to kind of soil it. I don't want to. I don't ever want to watch this film and think, oh, you know, I'm just going to slap it on. and kind of, It's not the type of film you can do that with anyway, but I don't want to kind of like devalue it in a way by kind of listening or so watching it too many times. That, that kind of sounds ridiculous even saying it, but it's, it's I, th- I think it's a testimony to how much I kind of revere it a little bit. I, I completely agree. But um, do, do any of you have any real experience with other drive films? I've only seen uh, the Vampire film and... Mm. That one is, it was interesting hearing you talk about this film and how easy you got into it, uh, Tom, and how, how much it stands outside of time. Because I feel that Vampire is 
like completely the opposite. It very much is a mark of its time with all the text that it has in the film. Uh, the same uh, kind of feeling I have with Nosferatu, where you are, if it, it feels like it's it's kind of uh, it's holding the text higher than the film as an art form. I, I suppose I haven't seen Vampire for so long. Okay, I, I don't think I can really kind of like kind of say, say one thing about it. I think it's it's. I think I'm so kind of like swayed by watching this. I don't, you know, I haven't really kind of gone back to it. Watching it, watching this yet has made me want to go back and watch Vampire mm. again and and kind of and have a look at it. I, I've seen Vampire about three or four times now, and each time I watch it, uh, it, it sticks with me a little bit more. The first time I watched it, it seemed slow. Uh, it wasn't. It was meandering. It it didn't grip me the same way where it was transcendently amazing, like Joan. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I go back to these images. There's this, these closing images in the in the grain mill. Uh, there are the way that reflections are used, the levels of shadow. That Vampire is a film that really grows with each viewing, at least in my experience. And you forget whether it's silent or a talkie, uh, kind of like some of the early Chaplin talkie films. You forget, was that a silent film? Was Modern Times a silent film or a talkie? And Vampire is like that, even though it's very text-driven, where you can see that, that, that Dreyer is not yet making that transition to sound, which he'll do very well in the 50s and uh, 40s and 50s. Uh, it, it still feels like something closer to what he did earlier with like Leaves from Satan's book or even like the um, the oh is it Christensen film uh, Hexen or some mm-hmm. of the earlier silent films there that it's playing with visual effects it's playing with 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 things that um, I that work that that really do work but it, it it's not one I would say oh if you want to do dry or go chronological order or or start with vampire or, or it really isn't. I think he has two masterpieces, and those are Ordet and, um, and and Passion of Joan of Arc. And, and but he has a lot of really remarkable filmmaking, especially if you take it within its historical context. He's doing things that other people aren't doing. Hmm. The only thing I would say about Vampire was it was responsible for one of the scariest instances in my entire life. When um, having watched it about three months afterwards, it was Halloween, and I was actually walking home from a party, <laughs> and, and it was really foggy. And there was someone dressed as death with a scythe walking down the road, <laughs> and it was it was actually pant-wettingly scary. And I seem to remember kind of like actually thinking, "Oh my god, this is the end." And it, I, I I think it might be that reason I haven't gone back to it because I was actually genuinely that traumatized by that incident. But <laughs> it's an image. I mean, it's an it's a film which is it's it's, it's strange because um, I don't often find kind of older films that scary. And Vampires one of those which kind of freak me out a little bit. Um, some of the imagery from it, I think, is pretty terrifying, and it was enough to kind of, obviously, kind of freak me out that night. And that it, it kind of falls in that category for me. I, I think I need to go back to it again and kind of reevaluate my sort of feelings towards it. But it was definitely a, it, it, it. Some of the imagery from it definitely sticks in my mind quite, quite profoundly. Hmm. Sounds like I might have to do that as well because I've had that first time experience that you had joe that was my experience of it and i haven't gone back to it since mm-hmm. so just being overwhelmed by the amount of text that is in the film and how i felt that it halted up the pace um that kind of uh, got me off that film for a bit which is interesting because if you look at joan of arc it's a heavily text driven amount the amount of intertitles that are interspersed in joan of arc is, is really you take that compared to say to the general or Metropolis, some of the kind mm-hmm. of contemporary films, uh, those films don't even use half the inner titles that, that Joan of Arc does. Uh, but you don't feel it for some reason, whereas in Vampire, you do feel the text invading. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you, I mean, with Joan of Arc, it begins with text. It begins with an opening on a book open.
happening, uh, that you're knowing that this whole thing is, is, is in some way an interpreted transcript. Uh, but at whatever, for however reason, it works as a visual text, regardless of that it's actually bound to the written text so heavily. Hmm. I'd actually forgotten that the film started with this prelude where you are watching these uh, folks open the book and reading from the text. But you really do need that introduction to the film because he gets really right into the trial and you need that kind of setup that is incredibly simple yet very, very effective that this is actually based on the record of Trial of Joan of Arc. I was going to say, actually, yeah, and that's something I really noticed this time was because it made it feel more like a historical document. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't for a second believe that what you see in the opening is the original text because it's kind of like, <laughs> like, I mean, I just had a piece that mentions you in the university and trust me, when that books, when texts are that old, you don't just swish the pages around like that, the kind of things. But um, no, when I was watching it and it added to the tragedy for me, I think, knowing knowing that well, I was watching it kind of thinking, going you know thinking this is based on those texts and it had a profound effect on me this time just that opening like you say it's just a very very simple kind of you could one one text could have said enough like this is based on true events or something like that but the fact it actually says this is based on you know almost kind of verbatim what was actually said and, and that kind of thing it really hit home i think the kind of the tragedy of the film just from that opening and it's just mm. as a kind of a, a you know an, an opening sequence it's dead simple just someone flicking through books but when you have to make the connection kind of intellectually, I think, yeah, it's, it's essential for how I think you should go into this film. You know, it's interesting. I, I had a kind of a reverse effect on this one, especially after watching the 50s version, the 50s cut. And then Joachim recommended watching uh, the Brisson adaptation or the Brisson film, which is also supposed to be based on transcripts. It, and, and the Brisson film is so different. It does feel like this kind of uh, documentary. Mm-hmm. And, and the 50s version starts with this entire backlog. You get the actual historical context and you realize how little historical context Dreyer gives you. I, I, I found myself more thinking of something like Persona with Bergman, where he's actually bringing in, he's he's saying this is a film, where he enter, he, he begins with these kind of images to let you know this is a film. And I felt like this was Dreyer saying this is a based on the story, but that he adds his interpretation, because it's at the beginning where Dreyer says, uh, I, I think I wrote down the quotes here, not in helmet and armor, but simple and human, a young woman who died for a country, which feels very narrative. But then Dreyer switches to where he says, a, a young faithful woman fighting alone against a band of blind theologians and skilled jurists. At that point, he's making a thesis. He's not making a historical statement. He's making a thesis about how he views Joan, which is a little different than some of these other versions where they try to tell you about the context of what's going on with France and Burgundy and how the English are involved. He doesn't do that. It's the same kind of like the other films get into the adventures of Robin Hood where they let you know this is the Saxons and and the Normans and and all all these kind of uh, intercuts. And and I think Dreyer really does focus to this as a piece of interpretive filmmaking, uh, because I, I just couldn't watch both the Brisson and 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 the Dreyer film and think that these are even the same Jones, even though they both claim to be based on the same sort of transcripts. It's interesting you say that because it uh, I never caught up with the feeling that he started with a thesis, but I definitely picked up the fact that he has a certain point of view uh, after the film gets started that. He portrays these monks as belligerent and someone who are, they're condemning her before the trial even starts and they're not really Mm -hmm. giving her a fair trial. They're just, they want her to take on their point of view. They're not interested in listening to what she has to say. And 
that is kind of what uh, he that you're saying that he starts with um, right up front explaining to us that this will be uh, kind of her um, her doom basically yeah and how I, they I how so. they are contributing to her doom well I, I thought of this from the theological perspective and you realize how the priests are treating him uh, of course this is a Jesus film it's a, an allegory of a Jesus film the passion of Joan of Arc is is letting you know it's it's making a a deliberate connection with, say, the passion of, of of Christ. That that word is loaded with that. But it's also a Luther film, and in that Joan is at times she's Jesus, at times she's Luther. And there's the intellectual aspect of it, where this is a court trial, and all these jurists are in there. And that's that Luther perspective, where they're they're haggling over theology. And in that kind of theological aspect of it, this captures that medieval Catholicism, where what they're not really interested in is in discovering the greatness of God, but with, with scholasticism and some of the 14th, 15th century movements, what they're trying to do is, is, is create a dogma and then see, did you get the dogma right? Mm. And what they're af- after with Joan is not the possibility that God is breaking in. Uh, they're not interested in that at all. What they want to do is say, does Joan answer the theology the, with the correct answers, and and that's where they're condemning her, and 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 it is that sense of religious as a, an oppressive institution that Dreyer is really going after. I think where he's mixing the theological and the legal into one kind of mindset, and mm-hmm. and, and that really to me stood out very much so as an interpretation of somebody who might be say a, more akin to a Protestant theologian who would be looking at the institutional hierarchy as, as, as oppressive. Joan as a victim of this oppressive institution. Then again, I might be overthinking it. <laughs> no, but I, I definitely feel that it's handling issues that we are dealing with to this day and that we will always be dealing with, mm-hmm, with mm-hmm. fundamentalism and acceptance of other cultures and xenophobia and intemperance and just how easily they ridicule her and scoff at her just for her opinions. It just yes, yes. it feels like this is something that will we will always be struggling with, and maybe that's what keeps it so incredibly fresh and modern uh, and always relevant for us. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing is it. I mean, it's misogyny as well. I mm. think that's going on in this film. I think it's. Don't get me wrong. I think if she was a man, she'd be suffering the same fate. But I think there's something even more kind of scandalous in the fact that this is a woman who's doing all this, you know, this is a woman who's leading armies, you know, she's doing essentially, I mean, you think kind of, we talk about kind of um, women's rights now, you know, in the 1400s or whenever, you know, let's be honest, women were pretty much, you know, not even kind of second class citizens. I'm sure kind of the cattle you had was probably ranked higher than they were. And you know, this was a woman who kind of really, she was doing a man's job, you know, she was out fighting and was, you know, really kind of a, a trailblazer really you know i mean we didn't have anyone in britain until like kind of elizabeth the first came along and i i think in this film it's the, it's the fact that they're so scared of her in a way i think and what she can kind of represent and when i was watching it it was i, I felt so sorry for her when i when i you know, watch it and they're kind of they're looking at her like this kind of insect and this kind of like you say you know, they're kind of ridiculing her in this way and this kind of like no one kind of i don't think there's any kind of reference to her sex in the film overtly but I got, I got the impression that there was this sort of kind of this this woman's an abomination of nature in a way for kind of being just for simply being a woman doing what she's been doing hmm. there there is the direct connection and this is all in the transcripts and this is in every kind of account of Joan of Arc is that she is dressed in men's clothing been told by God to dress as a man and this is at one of the center of those scholastic questions that were kind of like the institutional 
who did God tell you to dress like a man? And because obviously, according to the theologians, that's impossible, that God would never blur the distinction between the genders, that women dress like women, men dress like men. And one of the things they do try to get her to do is to renounce men's clothing, which she refuses to do until her mission is over. Hmm. It's interesting that you mention that you both see misogyny because this was made after the master of the house. Uh, mm-hmm. And Dreyer, he was invited to France by the uh, French Film Society to make make a film. And he was given the choice between Marie Antoinette, Catherine de' Medici or Joan of Arc, all three mm. female characters. Mm. And he, chose, he chose the latter as a result of... I read that either it was a renewed interest uh, in her among the French population or he draw drew matches. <laughs> but it's interesting that he was given three female characters that he wanted yeah. to portray. Yeah. Also, uh, speaking of, we were talking about the that this was based on the actual historical records, but um, the trial went on for actually 18 months. And Dry, he condenses this to what seems to be like a couple of days. It seems mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. this is a few couple of scenes that we are seeing. There's no, there's no really no scenery shots. There's no um, kind of um, uh, transitions from one scene to another. It all seems to flow like one long trial. And I, I think that goes back to what he's doing is really making a Jesus film. Uh, and, and of course, Dreyer wrote a Jesus script that he could never get funded. But this is something that he was kind of obsessed with most of his professional life was a Jesus film. And the trials and the persecutions, uh, the torture, these things are set up in a way that they do seem to emulate the, the, the regular Jesus narrative, the passion hmm. narrative. Of, so it's, it's really one trial, then shifted off to Herod brought back to Pilate, and then you even get these scenes where Joan is dressed in a crown. She's mocked as kind of this king uh, where you have these kind of Herodian guards that do that. So so there is that. I, I think that has to do probably with what he's doing, which is emulating the, the, the Jesus narrative as much as anything. But it works so remarkably well as opposed to trying to be so faithful to the facts that you actually make the film become – something other than what it the film needs to be. Uh, by condensing these, I think he, he doesn't lose any of the power or the truth of what's going on, but he actually probably gets to it much quicker than had he been. And this took place over 18 months. Hmm. No, I completely agree with what you're saying on that front. Um, he doesn't need to... We don't need to kind of see the kind of the... Yeah, the eighteen-month version with you know the caption saying six months later and all this type of thing. <laughs> I think, I think you know, he, you know, he obviously he got like kind of you know an hour and a half to make this film. And by doing that, I don't think there's anything. I mean, the Jesus story is something which you know it's a kind of you see it so many times in films, you know, variations of, as it were, and to kind of use that as a kind of a template to do this film. Yeah, you because know, the film's a completely different medium. Um, from, you know, we've talked about it before, where you have you know people kind of cry foul about the books and the the films mm-hmm. like the books and blah 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 and stuff like that and I, I think it's how you kind of tell the story and you know at the end of the day that i guess the, the the point of this film i suppose is you know it's a tragedy for this for this girl what's happening to her, and does the film accomplish that well yeah it does i blubber quite badly at the end of this film um i did today i don't know whether that's a result of um a trip to ireland and a particularly heavy weekend but i was at an emotional <laughs> i was at, i was at an emotional low when i was watching this film it really did have a kind of a, a personal effect on me and in that end i think it completely achieves what it sets out to okay so should we really get into this tom with passion of christ you can 
But I mean, we both know where this is going. I, <laughs> I absolutely despise that film on so many levels. Okay, um, but, but let me let me start, and then you can call me a Jew hater and a racist afterwards. Okay. <laughs> so, um, I would just I would just say one of my reasons, one of my one of my passionate Christ um, criticisms is I had the misfortune of watching it. Well, I saw it twice at the cinema, and the second time was with a group of evangelical Christians. <laughs> and I, I, it, 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 to this day, when you see grown adults running down the front of to the front of a cinema to shout "Don't do it" at the cinema screen, <laughs> your faith in humanity is slightly eroded. <laughs> and that's what I saw, and then that is what I witnessed. And I, I, you know, don't get me wrong; I mean, everyone kind of knows it. I'm a, a raving atheist. It has to be said. I don't. But I would never mock or persecute anyone for their religious beliefs. I sound, I, I'm going to hate myself for saying this. I mocked and persecuted those people so many times. Because I went out, I was like, you will not believe what I have just seen. And I was like, you even know how this story ends. It's illogical for you to run down there and say, don't do it to Pontius Pilate. Because you know what's going to happen. But no, that being said, I despise the passion of the Christ. It's one of the, I, 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 I I'm not. I'm not one for burning the negative of films, but I would make an exception for that film. <laughs> but anyway, that's my thoughts on the passion of Christ. <laughs> okay, Go so, on. but it, it's weird how I, I'm not really religious, but I found myself... No, sorry, no, that's something that annoys me. You're either religious or you're not religious. What are you, non I'm, or... Are... No, I'm not religious at all. Right, okay, thank you. Um, so, but I find myself... I find myself... Uh, <laughs> I find myself drawn to these kind of films where the protagonist is battling not only with her faith, but also with the society about her faith. Mm -hmm. And I feel that The Passion of the Christ, it deals with similar points of view, as you mentioned, Joe. And apart apart from, like, I'm not really uh, literate in uh, religion or biblical events. And maybe that's why... I can certainly appreciate some of the aspects of it because I'm not really measuring it up to historical events that happened. But I just found it an incredibly beautiful film like this one. And the cinematography, I found it incredibly evocative. And the score by John Debney is wonderful. And I find it a very brave film. And not only that it dares to tackle the theme that it does, but also doing it in the original uh, a language, what I presume to be the original language, anyhow, and it never, it has, it has an idea, and it never flinches from what it wishes to, what it wishes to portray, and I, I assume that what he is portraying are the realities of what happened. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'm naive. I don't know, but I, I'm... I, I'll give you the. I'll, I'll enter in with a third perspective here, which is at, <laughs> okay. when, 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 when the passion of this came out. I released a rock opera the same year, a few months before <laughs> the passion of, uh, of, of, of what is it? Passion of the Christ, called the Passion. My brother-in-law and I wrote a rock opera based on the Passion of Jesus Christ, which, for whatever reason, only sold about a hundred copies. We didn't catch on the <laughs> Mel Gibson craze, but so we're, I'm, I'm thinking through this at the time. I am also at this time a teaching Sunday school in a Southern Baptist uh, church, so so I'm I'm with these evangelicals, and and I'm, I wouldn't consider myself an evangelical anymore, but I, I, uh, I I'm I'm a Lutheran, 
And uh, but at the same time, being in there, one of the, the film had a very different effect on me than it did either of you. I don't loathe it because I think Mel Gibson is a remarkably talented filmmaker. Uh, Apocalypto is, I think, braver than Passion of the Christ. Hmm. But the Passion Ooh. of the Christ is is a very personal film and it's reflective of a pre-Vatican II form of Catholicism. The film doesn't follow the, the the gospels as a lot of evangelicals wanted it to. What it followed was the stations of the cross. This was good, hardcore Catholicism. It also found followed some mystical in interpretation, some me- medieval mystical things that I so I thought it was really interesting that way. The problem I had with the Passion of the Christ was if we're going to talk about misogyny in in the the the, the aspects of misogyny the issues were anti-semitism and there I think it's open to charges of anti-semitism but what it really was was this act of self-flagellation by Mel Gibson uh, of a hyper-masculinity of Christ uh, because because when we get to the brutalizing scenes of this and I, I and a lot of people I was going to church with were talking about can you believe how much he suffered for our sakes um, which. You know, I'm saying go watch Winter Light by Bergman. He has a response to this idea. But it is that part is here is he takes the Jesus figure beyond where a human being can go. Uh, physically, the person at the, the scene at which Jesus raises his back to be flogged even more. I realize this is a lethal weapon moment. This is not a, a Christian moment. This is not a historical moment. This is a filmic moment in which Mel Gibson, the filmmaker, turns Jesus into a action hero. Mm. And that was the point at which I was completely lost because it said that Jesus was no longer mortal. He was something greater than mortal. Uh, Where in The Passion of Joan of Arc, you get all of this doubt that seems to be so intensely human that it it makes for a much more honest film than The Passion of the Christ ever was. Mm. I mean, my my, my thing about The Passion of the Christ, I mean, I know so many people who went to see it and they said, God, it was so realistic. And I'm like, really? <laughs> I, I really, I was realistic, was it? You know, like, uh, based on what? Based on your, your, the eyewitnesses that you you know from down the pub. And I mean, like, like you say, Joe, that, that was, that's one of my issues with it. I mean, I'm, I, I'm repeatedly told by people who are religious that you know, this was, he was a mere mortal like you or I. And yet no, no human being alive could go through that. And as, as you say, he suddenly goes, it, it, is, it is this sort of, it, I mean, it's not, he, it's a Hollywood actor, it's Jim Cazell playing, Jesus, you know, this isn't mm-hmm. some kind of unknown they plucked out of thin air. You know, it's a Hollywood actor, and, and it's a Hollywood film. It's just, and, and it, it 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 goes to a point where it's like, okay, you know, this he suffered for our sins and stuff like that. But he, I think Mel Gibson takes it to the torture porn level. I, I agree. Um, I completely agree. Where it, where yeah. it, become, it becomes mm-hmm. grotesque spectacle for grotesque mm-hmm. spectacle. And when I was watching the Passion of Joan and Arc, there's that scene where you just see the uh, the torture kind of wheel being kind of wound up and I'm thinking, thinking what on earth are they going to do with that and you just look at her face and their faces and that's enough to know the horror of the situation mm-hmm. and there's that there's that shot in the in the passion of the christ where it, sh- it jesus isn't on that torch table it just shows the blood around him and it's yeah i know it's horrific and stuff like that but i'm constantly thinking so who who's meant to who's meant to watch that and feel anything well i mean i didn't you know i, I literally watched it with evangelical christians i saw their reaction to it and I, I saw, I, I just, it, it repulsed me. Um, not because I thought, God, that's a horrible thing to do. I just thought, just from a filmmaking te- standpoint, it's like when I watched um, Hostel, that film repulses me. <laughs> not, because, not, because, not because I'm some sort of prude, but I just sort of sit there thinking, this is just beyond, I, I don't know what, I don't understand what I'm meant to be getting out of this experience. 
does it sicken me? Well, it kind of sickens me in the fact that I'm seeing it. Um, and that the Patrick Cross, and like you say, you can, you can kind of, I love the music. It's got some, it's got some beautiful shots in it and that kind of thing. But that doesn't save the fact from how I, how I feel about it. It doesn't do anything for me. I wasn't moved by it. I didn't feel any kind of, kind of emotional reaction to it. Um, whereas when I watch The Passion of the Christ, I'm sorry, The Passion, of, uh, sorry, Joan of Arc, I, I do get, I, I feel everything in Joan of Arc, I feel like Mel Gibson wants me to feel when I'm watching The Passion of the Christ, which seems kind of particularly strange because one does it incredibly daddy and one does it as I, I think, sublimely. I just remember watching it in the cinemas and it, it hit me emotionally and dramatically, but I felt like I'm I angry that I'm not really feeling Jesus's pain or anything, but I'm I'm certainly relating to the figures around him, and I feel like that is my entry point into the film. I I, I do agree that he comes off as some sort of superhuman, um, but that's yeah. I I don't know. Uh, there's something. Else and, and, that... and let's just be honest. Mel Gibson is a raving misogynist, racist, sexist. I don't care how many times he goes. He comes out of these things and goes, oh, forgive him, he's just an alcoholic. Oh, you know, yeah, you know, the sugar tits and the, you know, I mean, all this kind of, all these horrible things that he comes out of. And there comes a point where you just have to put the hands up here and say, this man is a despicable human being. And Mel Gibson is a despicable human being. That being said, Apocalypto is a masterpiece and I love it and I love Braveheart. And, and I will watch his film. And I, I will openly admit I'm a complete hypocrite because I do love his films apart from Passion of the Rest. But there comes a point where you have to say this guy is not a very pleasant person. And all the unpleasantness about his character is in The Passion of the Christ. Hmm. Okay, speaking of lunatics, um, I found Passion of Joan of Arc interesting from another aspect. Uh, I study psychology and like it, take this with a grain of salt but i feel like this film is dealing with you could also argue that this film is dealing with a person that is suffering from some sort of schizophrenia or a personality disorder in mm -hmm. that she's believing in her heart of hearts that she's the child of god and i'm not saying that religion is mental illness but believing that you are a descendant of god um that could be argued I yeah. think this is real. Yeah, I, I I agree with that interpretation. I, and, and I think that's something that Luc Besson does when he does The Messenger in '99. He hmm. starts to play with that idea. He he creates a traumatic event for Joan to respond to with the rape of her sister, and turns yeah. the film into a, a kind of a, a feminist uh, perspective. Joan is a feminist hero, which hmm. again is a 1999 interpretation of Joan of Arc, as much as. Uh, you know, the other versions, the 1948 version by Victor Fleming is a 48 interpretation of Joan of Arc or or Saint, uh, Bernard Shaw's 19 – I can't remember when he did the play, St. Joan. That's Bernard Shaw's or Mark Twain's interpretation uh, that, that I think anybody who comes to Joan is allowed to create interpretation of Joan but has to deal with that fundamental question. Did Joan really hear voices? Did mm -hmm. God really call her? And I think uh, I think Luc Besson, he says, well, probably not. It might have been delusional. And I, Dreyer's masterpiece is I think he introduces that idea because you see the sort of imbalance, the way that Joan looks off, the way she looks into the sky at times, the way she closes her eyes for questioning, the way that she doesn't know how she's going to be delivered, but she believes that God has promised her that she'll be delivered. And later on, she comes to the understanding, oh, that delivery is through death. It, it does present without a clear interpretation 
that there is an internal and an external debate about the the reality of these voices uh, without without uh, Dreyer ever coming in, without anybody ever coming in saying definitively God spoke to her. Well, this is it actually. And I was, I was, when I was watching the film, there's one thing that completely lacks from this film, and it's any form of sign of divinity. There's mm. no parting of the clouds and the sun shining through. There's no kind of a tree that looks a bit like an angel or anything like that. It's completely redundant. You don't see any kind of you don't see any imagery in this film that would suggest there is some kind of higher power. It's all in her face, and I completely agree with what you're saying, Joachim, about the sense that this could be someone who's suffering from a mental delusion. And it's quite strange because I went to Israel. Um, I went to Jerusalem a few years ago, and they actually have a branch of the police that deals explicitly with people who go there hmm. and think they're the second coming of Christ. Wow. And, and, and actual, no, actual, it is an actual phenomenon where people go there. And you, you see people at the Wailing Wall nodding their heads, praying. And then if someone turns around and says, I can hear God, they're mental, and they get arrested. And it's it, actually, and, I, I, I like, well, and from, you know, from my kind of cynical atheist ways, I was like, well, what's the difference? You've got someone who's wearing a box on their head, nodding at a wall. But if someone says, I just heard God, they get like instantly wished away and kind of taken somewhere. And I, it just seems just kind of like a crazy thing. It's one of the things I don't understand about religion. It's like when we talk, when people say they heard the voice of God and this kind of thing. In any, un, kind, of, in any kind of normal circumstances, we kind of say that's a sign of some sort of irrationality mm-hmm. or some kind of delusion. But when it comes to religion, we seem to be a lot more forgiving. And with Joan, when I was watching this film, I, I was sort of sat there thinking, yeah, I, I can play, I'm with you, Joachim. I think she's having some sort of psychological breakdown. And when I was talking with Hunter Dusing um, on 24 Frames about um, The Last Temptation of Christ, I said, there's this scene in that film where um, William Defoe is walking along and he suddenly turns around as if he's talking to someone. And, you know, Hunter, Hunter's a Catholic and he was you know, saying how much he kind of like spoke to him as a Catholic. And I said, well, no, I think this is someone who's who, he's suffering. You know, the guy's got mental health issues. That's how I see it. And that's how I was thinking about this film. This woman's clearly suffering from some kind of delusion. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. She's, she, you know, she is going to be kind of released somehow. Well, she's either going to get let loose or she's going to get burnt at the stake. And how she interprets that release kind of feeds back to kind of how she's thinking. You know, I'm, I will be released. Well, you know, she does get a release and unfortunately it's in death. But I, you know, I'm, I'm completely with you. I think this is... From a psychological point of view, I think this is someone who's undergoing some kind of nervous breakdown or suffers from some, yeah, like like, like some form of mental condition. I think that's completely open to that interpretation, that there isn't anything very overt about God entering or God breaking in here. You have interpretations of that, and and this reminds me of scenes, say, from Winter Light, uh, especially where you have the shadow coming in, the the light coming in, and they can be interpreted in multiple ways. And this scene does do that because there is nothing explicit or overt about about God's presence within the film. Uh, The old – I'm trying to think something else there – uh, well, it does remind me quite a bit of an, another film, and and that's a, a, a Von Trier's uh, a Breaking the Waves, where this sort Ooh, of I, comes I, I in, too. I was just going to say about Breaking the Waves. I watched that quite recently. Well, Joan... Joan is is dealing with this the ambiguities of this. I, I think this really brings up because this is not an explicit image, and, and we're talking here about the image within the jail cell, kind of in the second act. Uh, Joan sees on the ground this shadow of a cross. I mean, it's it's clearly meant to be a cross. It's shot that mm. way to be a cross. But what we're 
privy to is that it's not actually across some sort of mystical figure. It's the way that the light enters the room, comes through the jail cell, and, and creates this form of a, a shadow of a cross on the floor, which then Joan is open to interpretation. And this creates a, a real problem with the idea of silence of God. I, I think people who come from a religious perspective deal with this issue, not as the absence of God, but the silence of God, a question that Bergman deals with when his is kind of famous series of films from the late 50s, early 60s. And this is what Joan is being confronted with, is there is room for doubt. Uh, There is room for questioning. And for those of us who are viewing this, uh, we see this definite what would appear to be the breaking in of God at the same time this breaking in of God being intruded uh, by, by, I think it's Koshan who steps in the middle of this, blocks the metaphorical light or sign of God. And this creates a, a bigger problem and it leads to some of the complexities of Joan herself. Uh, so Joan is so so complex that these these trials take place in something like the 1430s. Uh, it's a few years after that that the trials are found illegal. But it's not, I think, until gosh, I want to say 1920 that Jane is Joan is canonized as a saint by the Catholic Church. So that suggests this was an issue for them. Hmm. Yeah, and I think that kind of call me a cynic, but I think that's something the Catholic Church is quite good at, is kind of retrospectively <laughs> saying, hang on a minute, well, w- wouldn't you know it? This person's actually pretty amazing, but I mean, it's, <laughs> it's like, um, no, that's okay. <laughs> but, I mean, it's like, I mean, if, 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 if you've you seen A Man Escapes, the Robert Bresson film. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's another it's... one. I mean, you know, Bresson was mm-hmm. quite open. He made this film, you know, it's, it's a mirror, you know, the, the kind of the role of God in this film is is kind of, you know, it's, it's all there. And when I was watching it, I was thinking, well, no, Bresson shows you exactly how this man is able to escape from this prison. It's not a miracle. It's basically mm-hmm. kind of, uh, you know, humans kind of, you know, working things out for themselves. And it was quite strange when I was watching it because I was thinking, the guy's obviously made it. And I'm thinking, I completely disagree with, with, with what you're saying. And it's, you know, about, you know, he, he's the one who's <laughs> telling me this is what this film's about. And I'm saying, well, no, it's not actually. You're just completely proving what you've just said it's about actually incorrect because you're actually physically showing me how he's going about there is no kind of miracle no, there's no miracle involved you've just shown me how he's fashion managed to do all these things and with kind of joan of arc i mean it's it's to me it's the ultimate proof in the non-existence of god because she if if, if you know this is someone who is if she can hear him and she you know she's truly if the catholic church is saying yeah this is someone who was you know definitely someone who was listening to god this is someone who's a saint well to me it's like where was God to save her? You know, was her kind of role to be burnt at the stake? If that's so, that's horrific. You know, it's, the world's not a better place because that happened. And it's this kind of like conflict I find when I'm watching these types of films. And I mean, obviously, Joe, you come up a completely different place than I do when you're watching it. But I'm just kind of sitting there thinking, well, get in there, rescue her, then, you know, actually do something for this poor woman. Don't but let her go through. Is it God's. Like, it is God's assignment to save us or make the world a better place. That is an argument I feel that most uh, Christians use uh, when they are when they are given that sort of question or argument. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is goes to a larger question, and this is something that's core at, say, Christian theology, or it's been a longstanding idea of Christian theology, 
the question of theodicy. Uh, th- why does God allow suffering? What are these puzzles about the character and quality of God that are different than what we suspect? Uh, a, a God who apparently loves justice, but here it stands by as an act of injustice takes place. Now, the problem that we have for this, though, is we can take that in there. We could look at it and say this is a travesty of justice. We could say, where is God in this? But that's not what the film is really asking us to do. The film is at some level asking us to enter into the film and deal with the questions that is present in this particular courtroom hmm. that these particular people are are bound to in the 14th in the 15th century and that is either these voices are from God or they're not and the way that the court and the jury has to try this the way the theologians have to try it is they have to say well these voices or what this woman is saying what she is claiming this direct revelation she's receiving is contrary to what we believe to what we hmm. teach and either she's right about this and we're wrong in our dogma uh, or she's wrong about this. It's a delusion. It's, it's misguidance from the devil. And we're right in our dogma. So, so this is the, the neither nor, the solution that this is psychological. That's something that we can do with this issue of Joan, say, from the 1900s, from post-psychology, post, uh, post-Freud. But the, within the particular context of this film, that's not a choice we're giving. We have to decide. Mm. But she's still a 19-year-old girl who's going to get burned at the stake. That's, that's, that's where it kind of like that's where it, that's where it kind of like truly kind of troubles me. Um, mm-hmm. it, 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 it's a really, it, I mean, like I said, it, it's um, it's it's such a kind of strange one when you kind of like you know depending on kind of what kind of side of the kind of the, you know, the religious divide you come down on, and it, it's one of those where. When I kind of got into kind of, I mean, as I say I've always been an atheist, but when I kind of like got into kind of debating kind of atheism and religion and that kind of stuff, the question always people, a lot of atheists kind of says this kind of checkmate question is, well, if there's a God, why does he let bad things happen? And mm-hmm. that's not really the question because it is it's really to an atheist, you don't even ask the question because it's just there is no God, therefore these things are going to happen. And I think right, what really right. to happen with this is that you have these kind of people. You, you, I, I see this film as fundamentally kind of it, it just highlights everything that I really don't like about religion. Like these guys act like you know we have it now with ISIS, for example. Those guys believe absolutely, utterly in everything they are doing is absolutely right and correct. They feel they are ordained by God to be doing what they're doing, and obviously it's horrific. And in this film, and it's like I guess it kind of it's one of the reasons why, like you say, you commit kind of it does transcend time because these people believe absolutely that they are doing the right thing in the eyes of God. They think this is, they are there condemning this woman and judging her because that's exactly what God wants them to do. And they are the appointed ones on this earth to do it. And for someone like myself, I just get so frustrated when I'm watching it because it's like, this doesn't need to happen. You know, it's like, it, it, it's that kind of tragedy unfolding before your eyes. And it seems so avoidable to me. And it, it's also interesting. I'm having the film on in the background now and I'm watching the scene where they are reading, um, uh, what's it called? The, uh, when they have made a decision about her, her trial. Um, they're reading that to the public and they're all saying like, please, Joan, just sign it and say mm-hmm. what we mm-hmm. want you to say. And they, they mm-hmm. do really have compassion for her if she complies. Mm-hmm. Well, they actually say to her, this is all for your benefit yeah. at one stage. I'm sure they do. They, they say something along those lines. And so it's and it's interesting that you're, you're not only frustrated with their dogmatic ways, but you're also frustrated that just live to fight another day. It's like kind of aspect for Joan. Mm-hmm. Well, that's where the sacrifice, that's where the kind of, this is, that's where the kind of the, 
the greatness of what she does comes from, yeah. doesn't it? Because she doesn't she doesn't sign she could easily sign that. I mean, you yeah. know, it's and like you go like you say, Joe. Yeah, Jesus could easily have got himself off the cross if he just said the right things. He didn't. He, did, he you know he went through with with he put himself in a position where you know he wasn't going to kind of go go back on his ways and and you know pay the ultimate price. And Joan does the same thing. You know she 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 says no, I'm not doing this. I'm you know I'm gonna you know I'm do what you want to me. It's not going to hurt me. I'm going to die. Blah blah. But I'm going to kind of you know my soul's going to carry on. And that's one of the things that we uh, yeah we we. We admire about her in a way. Mm. On the other hand, I think just sign it, love, and <laughs> yeah, like I say, live, live, live to fight it. Don't go through it. You can get out of this situation, but you know that's why she's a saint, isn't it? That's why she does this wonderful thing. One of the things that Passion of Joan of Arc is really known for is its cinematography and the use of close-ups and the emphasis on the faces. And this is an interrogation, and that involves like questions and answers. And Dreyer he stated that due to the fact that the nature of the film is an interrogation that demands more close-ups. And it also serves that it gives an unflinching look, that you're not able to look away, but you are kind of bombarded with these questions and just the ridicule and the torture that is she's put through. Well, do you know what, actually? And I'm not taking, I'm not being, I'm not mocking it when I say this. But this film, I, I, I watched the other day, Sinead O'Connor's Nothing Compared to You video. <laughs> and that, that and that, that is one of the most emotional pieces of film or whatever you want to call it you can ever see absolutely that you know, it's a kind of a heartbreaking song and it's a heartbreaking video and when i was watching this film um again i, I was kind of reminded of that and you look into her eyes and her face and it's an exceptional performance it's not a good performance it's not a great performance it's an exceptional mm-hmm. performance mm-hmm. of and it's one of the all-time greats and it, I was, when I was watching it, my, my favourite performance ever is um, George C. Scott in Patton. And okay. when I was watching, and when I was watching this, I thought, Do you know what? I think it might have even trumped that for the sheer thing because you just look at her eyes, and like we were saying earlier, there is no kind of d- divinity in this film. There isn't God. We don't see the you know God up there looking down at her saying, "Don't worry, everything's going to be fine." So when she's looking up at the sky, you totally believe that she's looking up and seeing something. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and and the kind of the passion that you see in her face, and the kind of the the fear and the doubt, and how scared she is, and how kind of defiant she is, it's all there in that performance. And it's just a very simple thing. It's the, a quick movement of the eyes. It's kind of that kind of pained look on her face. And that camera doesn't give you the opportunity to focus on anything else when it when it's on it. It's just there all the time. And you don't like. I mean, there's a reason why I think you know, when you saw this film with. French subtitles or whatever, and you, you didn't. I said, "There's a reason why you understood perfectly what was going on, and it's because of her face and that performance. Mm-hmm. And it, it's it's exceptional. It's a, it, it's. I don't know. I've just never seen anything like it before or since. And it's one of the reasons why you can kind of go back to this film. I mean, you know, I've, I kind of I make films for a living in a way, and it's you dream of getting that type of performance out of people, and he just manages to do it just by kind of sticking the camera there. I, I, I would love to know what his directions were to her to get that type of performance. I'd love to know how he coaxed that out of her and how he did it. It's just, it's, you know, I'm speechless really when I, when it comes to kind of, when, when I'm watching it anyway, I'm, I'm just sat there kind of, we live in the age, don't we now, where there's so many distractions when you're watching a film. I mean, I've banned myself from taking my mobile with me now when I watch a film. Because we all do it. We sit there on our sofa and we kind of 
you quickly check someone messages you and you kind of text back. I, don't, I couldn't, I had my phone next to me during this film. I didn't pick it up once when I was watching it, just through kind of that, hmm. how engrossed you become and, and you know, just through his camera work. I remember reading that Dreyer, he did numerous takes and he also put Falconetti through quite an ordeal where she was supposed to be, she knelt on these stone floors that they built and she knelt there for long hours without being allowed to express the pain externally. So he was kind of hoping that this pain that he was putting her through that would transcend as a suppressed or kind of an inner pain. So those tears, I, I reckon some of those are really like out of pain just from sitting on her knees on their stone floors. Hang on, let me just get my director's note. Let me just get my notebook out. So that's, that's torture. Yes. That's how we get the film. So I'm, I'm, I'm doing a film on Tuesday, so that's torture the cast. Okay, thanks. <laughs> now, I'm sure. thinking of a film that came out this year. I don't know if either of you have seen it. It's called Nightcrawler, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal. This is a really remarkable film, at least in the performance. I like a lot of things about this film, but the performance here by Gyllenhaal, he goes through this intense physical rigor, and we've seen this with other actors too. But Gyllenhaal, he starves himself. He loses weight. He just kind of subsists on this on this kind of minimal diet so much that it has this really kind of frenetic effect in his performance. He takes on this sort of coyote persona. His eyes get larger. His skin gets dropped. And, and you do see the energy in that performance. And the other thing is, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I believe that this entire film was shot sequentially, that yes. it was in the order that the story is presented. And I can't think of anyone who really does that anymore, uh, with the only possible exception being another Danish filmmaker, uh, Nicholas Reffin, who I believe tries to, whenever possible, shoot his films chronologically or sequentially. And But I think he does that for a different reason than Dreyer, and I, I think that's so that he can see how the story develops and, and goes. So he, he approaches his film kind of like those was right fiction, where we were waiting for the story to sort of show itself. And, but uh, I, I'm trying to think of other people. Von Trier and Bergman are the two people that come to mind as far as being directors capable of getting these sort of performances out of actors uh, that they to, – either to the point of exhaustion or they have so much confidence or trust in the director that they show vulner vulnerability. But I, I think I, I have to say Fal those aren't to compare those to Falconetti's performance here. There's something so phenomenal about it, something incredibly transcendent about this. So we've talked about transcendence in this already. Uh, just the the level of quality she gets here. Now, I want to say something. This might sound a little odd, but I found that the performance seemed better, deeper to me in the 20 frame per second. I don't know why. It's always seemed more frenetic in the other version for some reason. Absolutely. It's those actual edited little beats of that kind of those. Just the camera just kind of lingers there a little bit longer as she's staring off where you kind of see kind of reaction shots from kind of the people kind of standing around it that go on just that little bit actually just kind of you get that little bit of information um that you wouldn't get um you know, on the speeded up version and my kind of instruction to it was through the criterion one so going back on watching the master of cinema one yeah i definitely noticed that actually it seemed to breathe a little bit longer mm -hmm. and i think that kind of did it. It, it it does it it's only to it to the good of the film that it does that i would i would uh lean on the other side actually um Probably because the first two times I saw it, that was in the 24 frames per second version, the faster version. Mm -hmm. And that's the way I, that, just it just stayed with me, that kind of the pace of that film. Uh, so when watching it this time, I, I sensed it kind of lacked for me in a certain mm. immediacy, the certain urgency and the drama of the film. Um, I felt that was more present in the 24 frames version than the 20 frames per second version um 
but uh, I do agree that um, you can definitely see more nuances in her performance, but just as a film overall, uh, I lean towards the 24 frames version, actually. Mm. Ooh. Yes. Well, are, are, are we not the cinephile? <laughs> no, it's, 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 no, I mean, you know, from a from a technical point of view, though, I mean, just the camera movements as well. Yeah, you know, the kind of tracking shots and the and some of the kind of the, the, the pannings and things like that. And it's just that bit where it kind of it kind of uh, tilts down with that awful torture wheel mm-hmm. thing, and it's this really kind of like discombobulating shot. And you sort of like thinking, oh my god, what is going on? And it's a, it's just it's just a horrible, horrible, nasty moment. And um, yeah, I, 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 I hesitate to use, I use this kind of like slightly ignorantly, but it, it's like it's, it's like it's being directed by a director from this age. If you know, I mean, mm. it doesn't seem like someone who's kind of shooting it in the twenties. You know, have that kind of very kind of pronounced style, but it feels like a modern director who has made this film. It doesn't seem like it. I guess that's kind of why it's so ageless in a way. It doesn't seem to be kind of. A film of its time, you know, so far above its time. Yeah. Well, the only contemporary director I can think of, and there's probably others, but the only one I can really think of that's doing the sort of thing that is being done in this film is maybe Terrence Malick, who's working so visually. I, I think, especially those last two films, uh, Tree of Life and To the Wonder. What he does in, in, in To the Wonder is is pretty remarkable in in the way that it's filmically, and and you know, it's it's hard to say because I might be the I'm probably the only person I know that that actually thought uh, To the Wonder was a successful film. But, you know. Oh, no, no, no. I, I love okay. To the Wonder. So there's two of us then, I guess. Absolutely. I, 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 look at, I look at the fluidity, though, of to the, to the Wonder and what Malik does, especially in To the Wonder and Tree of Life, those, those two most recent films. And the thing that struck me, though, as I look back at that, and, and maybe this has to do with the casting of Ben Affleck, who this year was great in Gone Girl, but more as – being Ben Affleck, being is something that that captures the light well, or or kind of is something solid in the scenery. And to the wonder, Ben Affleck is solid. He's part of the scenery that never happens with Falconetti within this performance. Uh, but we do get to the idea of Carl Dreyer's mm. fluidity, his, his aesthetic fluidity being something like to the wonders uh, or Terrence what Terrence Malick is doing. However, how Dreyer never lets the visual overtake the emotive power of Falconetti, that, that centralness. And you start to think about the kind of visual or the technical prowess. One scene that really stands out to me is about eight minutes in, there's this shot in which the camera kind of pushes in toward a guard, but it's not a push. It's almost like the camera is on a rope and it swivels in. This scene's echoed about, uh, I'd say, at an hour 15 mark where these guards are dropping maces out of the tower. They drop a mace, the tower, the tower, or the camera swings <clears> in, it pulls back out, it swings back out, then it pulls back in, swings back out, and it's not a push with a lens. Uh, you could take any frame from this, cam- this shot from Dreyer's film and it'd be amazing, but what's particularly amazing is that despite all this, ama- <laughs> this imagery, the Falconetti performance never gets overtaken, never lost in it. I think this was her only major performance, and I think also that this was her second uh, film role, and also the last, was, which is just amazing that she didn't go further with her film career. She preferred theatre, apparently, go figure, but just never was attracted to working in cinema. But uh, the fact that we have her even on this film is uh, such a... It's uh, so amazing watching her... Just how just definitely what you talked about, Tom, with uh, me not be being able to understand what was written and anything. It all it all comes from her face and just how how she's so 
evocative in her emotions and how she emotes so genuinely. And I think she must have suffered from dehydration or something because she's crying through this entire movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's again, you, you, you're just watching suffering, aren't you? That's that's the thing. And you, and you generally get the impression that this poor girl is going through hell. And if you like you say, she was kind of sat there for hours on end in kind of what sounds like stress positions. Um, it, it's all there on screen. And it's she, she, the thing that gets me uh, watching again is, is, is how scared mm-hmm. she looks. And I think when you're kind of looking at her, looking around, these kind of men kind of looking down at her, and they're kind of like, they're not ogling her, but they just seem to, they, they seem to like ugly people looking down at her. And, and she's like, it's kind of like, you know, lamb to the slaughter, as it were. And um, yeah, I was really bothered by it, actually. It made me feel quite uneasy seeing it like this. It's, it, you know, it's, it's kind of new how I went into it. And uh, I, I was, um, I, I think it upset me more seeing it this time. Um, and seeing her, uh, her her performance, that was how kind of what I took away from it. I'm talking. I, I, I'm now realizing why I don't watch this film that often because it kind of elicit elicit such a kind of sense of kind of not altogether nice emotions from when I watch it. It's interesting how Drive shoots this film because the the question is they're also or they're often portrayed in such a harsh and unkind lighting where they they are shot like like monsters monstrously and from these intimidating low angles portraying all the warts and every facial hair and everything on their face but Joan she's somewhat beautified and shot with this soft even lighting often she shot straight on or from above placing some sort of it's placing a cinematic sympathy on her unashamedly so yeah and deservedly, and that in the film—that's what—that's what this film is about, and that's what that's exactly what it's trying to do. I, I kind of admire how kind of upfront it is in that respect. Mm-hmm. I, I think you know we can talk about. We started off talking about the best and the greatest, and and I, I was hoping the question wouldn't come up: Is this the greatest silent film or anything like that? But what mm-hmm. I will say it is the greatest that I can think of is the best use of the standard ratio, the one three seven ratio. That I've probably ever seen, uh, and, and I know there's this year. I mean, it's amazing. It made a comeback this year with Hotel Budapest and, or Grand Budapest Hotel, and uh, this Polish film Ida. I don't know if either of you've seen that one, Ida. Mm-hmm. I've seen I've seen Ida. Uh, it, and I absolutely love that. It's it's and it uses some of these shots too that appear in in this where uh, there's sold where the guards leave the room toward the end of the first act. Uh, they're shot right about ear level. And that, that makes an appearance in Ida. I, it really stood out to me that Ida, they cut people off at the neck at the bottom of the frame. But the four, I, I guess, well, 137 or the 43 on this one, it, it it's the square format, which we, you would think would make this more of a static film. But what it ends up doing, especially because Falconetti's head is sometimes tilted, is it allows Falconetti's head to fill up the entire frame where there's no space mm. left on the side. There's no escape. You're kind of stuck in there with her in this kind of claustrophobic, semi-surrealistic, almost Caligari uh, set. And and, and uh, that I, – I don't think this film would be one that would work as well with a 185 or, or some of these other aspect ratios. I think that ratio uh, just serves this film in such a way that that it's – Again, like so many things in this, it's married. The text is married to the performance, which is married to the aesthetic, which is married to this this scope. It, it, it all works so get to so well together. It's such a coherent film for something that any individual part seems exaggerated, but the way that they they all work together co- as coherent is is absolutely boggling to me. Yeah, the thing about Ida is, I mean, just go back when you when a lot of directors now use this kind of the, the, the four three Academy ratio frame. It's sort of seen as if they're doing it to kind of be a bit kind of like, ooh, you know, like making this kind of 
retro kind of statement. But what I think, and exactly what you just said, is for, 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 it, it serves a very functional purpose in that you are completely have to focus. You get a lot less space to focus on. Hmm. That's you know a, a genuine sort of um, you know stylistic kind of I suppose justification for using it. I mean like um, the, the recent Andrew Arnold's Wuthering Heights film uses a four three frame, hmm. and it works perfectly for that. You 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 completely focusing on on the action, and this is and I completely agree with what you're saying, Joe. Is that there's nowhere there's nowhere to hide in this film. You can't ogle the sets. You can't ogle the scenery. You can't kind of you know sometimes when you watch a film where. Um, I guess to the wonder it was a, it was a film so beautiful I couldn't make up my mind whether I liked mm-hmm, it or not. Mm-hmm. That was what, how that was what I felt when I left it. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got, since gone back and I, yeah, I do really like it. But with this, you just completely focus on these people's faces, and it has an intimacy and an emergency almost to it, which I don't think you'd get in another format. Obviously, I think at the time there wouldn't have been another format anyway. But this is someone who's mastered the art of that format and that ratio to completely kind of tell his intellect what he's trying to achieve intellectually perfectly through the framing of the film it's interesting that this huge concrete set that was built (laughs) which realistically portrays the Rouen prison it's one of the most expensive sets that was ever built in Europe uh, at that Mm. time and just the design and the unnatural angles and all these perspectives that add to Joan's state of mind that we seldom get any view of we're always Mm -hmm. watching we're always watching her and how she's performing and we are never really asked to pay attention to the odd angles that you, you kind of pick those up on second and third and four viewings where you can kind of pick up in the background that, wait a minute, this this sort of looks odd. You, you, you feel them. Yes. And even if you, you can't do, intellectualize yeah. them. It's yeah. subconsciously, yeah. And the thing about the sets as well, I don't know, but they seem almost fairy taleish, like mm-hmm. pristine white and, and nice and clean. And it seems so at odds with this horrible story that's being told. And it's funny you say they're most expensive because they don't look the most expensive <laughs> no, they at, don't. at all. <laughs> it's only until the end, really. I mean, there's a physicality to it because at the end you see kind of people throwing things off the battlements and stuff. And yeah, that, that, that brilliant scene where those kind of um, those swinging ball things are being chucked down. So obviously the, you know, the set had kind of you know, internal structures to it. And I can imagine, you know, it did seem it. But the fact that you don't notice it costs so much, I think, is, is probably testament to the fact that you're so engrossed in the story. You're not kind of looking at the um, the set mm. dressing. And apparently Your it was... Kim... Oh, sorry, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I was going to say, Joachim, I was going to ask you if you uh, ended up, you had mentioned the, uh, the uh, Brisson film, the 62 Brisson film. And I was wondering if you had gone back and or if, I, I watched it this week and it really stood out to me uh, in, in the differences between these two films were approached as far as the uh, verticality of Brisson's film where everybody sits up straight everybody has good posture everybody's yes. shaped everything is vertical the, the cross is always vertical it's it's perfectly at these at these perfect expected angles uh, how much more static that film felt compared to this one so in, rigid in every, and in this, every is, sense. this is so crooked and that mm-hmm. film is so incredibly rigid mm-hmm yeah, I, I completely agree, uh, and it's interesting how I th- Dreyer he he gives this film a movement, as we were talking about uh, before, and Bresson he keeps it very like it feels very caged, it feels very mm-hmm. still, and definitely how the actors are they're kind of bound by their um, vertical alignment, and you feel like they can't really. They can't really emote. They can't really express anything. It's very, very uh, sterile. Uh, Tom, have you you, you hadn't seen um, Trial? 
I've not seen the Breath. I've not, I've not seen the Charlie Show in the Vark. I have to confess. Okay. Yeah, I haven't watched it yet. Uh, no, what I was going to say uh, with regards to the set is that um, if you have ever seen pictures of the set, um, uh, color photography is actually painted pink. Oh, okay. Just so that it would have a right kind of gray tone to contrast correctly with the uh, sky that would be white. So mm. um, it would be, I think it would be, uh, or it is kind of weird watching that kind of pink castle <laughs> when <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're, so, you're so used to seeing it in that uh, white uh, white color. Oh, well, I mean, the other thing about this film is some of the, the imagery kind of stands out so much. Like, I mean, I don't know if you think of the skulls with the maggots in them. That was another thing that really kind of got me this time, and it's such a you know, it's the imagery alone. It's so kind of it's frightening, and and, and the bloodletting as well got to me as well. Oh yeah, there's yeah. nowhere to hide, and I was trying to work out how they how they did it, and I think that's that's someone being that's someone having that done to them. I'm convinced of it. That, that's, <laughs> that's, it I can't believe they could do that. Then and it's there's all these kind of little moments that kind of add up, but you don't really notice them. It's the film feels such a. It doesn't feel like a collection of little tiny pieces. It works as a whole so much better, and it kind of, that's one of the reasons why you kind of days afterwards you're thinking about it. And I don't know about you two as well, but the final bit, which is getting burnt, um, mm. that really, really gets me. Again, it kind of goes back to the kind of the subtlety that the Passion of the Christ doesn't do that. You see every last gory detail in this. All it is is a bit of kind of smoke and her kind of looking kind of quite scared up to the sky. And it works so well. You know the pain that she's going through and the fear and everything like that. But there's her, her bodily form in the middle of the flames. And, yeah. and that picture, that image to me, and I know Dreyer would never be able to conceive of this, but it reminded me of, say, the Buddhist monks burning themselves mm-hmm. uh, during the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And, and that was the image right there was that, that there's a body inside those flames. And it's not necessarily a stoic image, but it's, a, it, it's the image of a person who is burning themselves to escape this world in a sense. And, and it is something that I don't know that I can think of an image that's that harsh in film until 1960, late 1960s, early 70s uh, war films, and, and especially something like Platoon or or something along that line. I don't remember an image that is that stark as that that body being burned alive. And then as, as you know, she's dead at this point, but the body drops uh, or it just kind of shifts a little bit. And you realize that's that's Joan. And, and Dreyer tells us her body, she escapes to heaven in the flames. But she, you get the feeling of, of, of that death. And, I, and I've seen other Joan films where the, where the fire gets used and it's either too timid or it's too exaggerated. This one is horrific and at the same time it's not exhibitionist. Uh, it, it's remarkably controlled and effective. Mm. Moving on to – like I feel like the editing in this film, that is something to be discussed. Uh, I know that mm-hmm. uh, David Bordwell, he has – uh, a shot-by-shot analysis of the film. Mm. And uh, in a book that he'd done uh, on this film, he says that uh, over the of the films, over 1,500 cuts, fewer than 30 carry a figure or an object over from one shot to another, and fewer wow. than 15, they constitute a genuine um, match-on-action, as, as it said, where match-on-action is where people are rising in one shot and they continue rising in the next shot. So all the, all the shots become like a series of startling ones that mm-hmm. follow one after another. And we're, we're kind of kept in this uncomfortable cinematic state where we're, we're always on edge in terms of the 
common visual language that we are used to as modern audiences with where you have these establishing shots you have the shot reverse and so on we don't really get this in this type of film we're always kind of kept on edge i feel it reminded mm-hmm. me of slightly like, yeah, kind of like soviet montage editing where it's but you, you notice the editing the, the yeah. cuts are very harsh and they're very kind of deliberate and they're very kind of jarring um and yeah you're acutely aware of the fact of the editing and yeah like you say it's very kind of strange when um uh you know, modern editing in normal hollywood films you're not supposed to notice it at all that's the whole point mm. of it it's meant to be completely seamless and, <laughs> and here it's like boom bang close up you know like that and it's just like it it's refreshing, I think, to see it again. I think it's it's really interesting for me, from a filmmaking point of view, to see it like that. It's uh, you don't see it every day, and that's one of the reasons why I think I can, it appeals to me a little bit more, perhaps. I'm curious, I mean, because I I get whatever Scandinavian film gets to America and gets noticed, so I, I know the the big ones. But I, I'm curious about the '90s, the Dogme movement. Uh, because breaking the waves, one of the things that Von Trier talked about is, is in his theory of editing was the shot only lasted as long as there was emotional energy to it. And yeah. then he would cut and it had the same sort of cutting, not exactly with probably the same ratio. But there were so many cuts because he would say that shot lost its emotional. I cut it a frame before it loses emotional energy. So he didn't care about the consistency of the cuts, that there was the invisible edit, but whether that it always maintained an emotional charge to it. And I, I think that's probably something that... You know, I, I, maybe it's just coincidental that these are two of the most significant Danish directors, uh, and then and then Reffin's. I think Reffin's father is is the editor for Breaking the Wave. So so there's this this Danish film connection, and that could be coincidental. But I, I I just can't speak with any authority of whether that's that's something that 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 we see in Danish film, but we don't see as much in other places. Although there is some kind of uh, Latin American film that, and and there was a little bit of Indian film, but a little bit of Latin American film that will play with that kind of editing and some kind of contemporary fast cuts. But even those fast cuts of, of 20th century, 21st century, uh, or early 21st century, the green grasses, um, those are to meant to be emulating some sort of speed and pace, but they're not there about the artistic quality or the emotional quality of the shots. I do, I do know that uh, Fontria, his like cinematic idol is Dreyer. So he was he would definitely be uh, have been influenced by the fact that dry he seems to the film is driven by like faces and emotions mm-hmm. more than dialogue and action and it's it's this pure pure experience this film where it's an aesthetic film it's shedding like any excess and it's focused mm-hmm. focusing solely on like Jones undying belief and the that is completely driven by the um dramatic tension not the dialogue and the action mm-hmm. no totally and i think it's what keeps this film keeps this film so fresh is that um yeah every scene has a weight to it and an emotional mm-hmm. weight that uh yeah there's no there's no fat is there on this i mean an hour and a half and it, it 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 amazes me how quickly this film goes it doesn't feel like an hour and a half it feels a lot less than that because you're so kind of captivated and you don't get time to breathe i think that's how i kind of see how i was kind of experiencing it this time mm-hmm. around so uh, for this uh, episode and recording, uh, which did you all watch the three different versions? No, I watched the twenty. I watched the, I watched two versions. I watched the twenty frames version with the soundtrack by uh, Mia Yazinti. Oh, I can't pronounce it. I don't know it <laughs> and the twenty and the twenty four frames one with the uh, Lauren Connors. Yeah. Soundtrack. What about you, John? Uh, yeah, I watched the I think the twenty 
with the um, well, I, I watched most of the what's the avant-garde one that was the one that you can't pronounce. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I watched enough of that one, but I I it just wasn't working uh, for me. I, there was something about how reckless it felt. Um, the, the 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 music with that particular version it just felt reckless, like. It didn't seem to be of the same caliber or the same meditative quality as the film itself. So I went with the piano score uh, version, and that one really worked for me. That one held me all the way through. And then, of course, the the fifties. The I forget the pronunciation here. Uh, the De Luca or uh, Loduca, I think. Loduca. That one. It was uh, it was a travesty. <laughs> uh, and and uh, I mean, to me though, it still goes back to the Einhorn. So I, I'm not losing my my um, criterion that eighty minute. Einhorn, uh, that that's there's so much energy to this one. I'm thankful for the for the 20 frame with the piano score. Uh, the piano score is very nicely done. There were moments mm-hmm. where it it matched the ambition of the film, and there were other moments where it felt like they were trying to emulate what it might have felt like as a silent film, where there mm-hmm. were some tropes. Uh, but but uh, definitely of the three versions on there, that was the one that I, I I preferred. Yeah, same as me. I prefer the. 20 frames version simply because of the music um the 24 frames version that that music is atrocious and it's so it's so incredibly distracting from the film mm-hmm. and the the creaking uh it, it drove me insane it, it has like creaking from floorboards and stuff and it just felt like it was John Cage and just a lot of noise <laughs> not very I, I really can't understand what the motivation behind like, how do they feel the music fit the film? I, I really can't mm-hmm. see the connect there. Well, I mean, we've had this so. conversation before, haven't we, Joachim, when we talk about how on silent films, if the music's bad on silent films, I mean, some of the Kino ones are just abysmal. And mm. if it's, it's something it's, it's just <laughs> so distracting. And, and, you know, we talked about it before, but, I mean, I remember watching Intolerance and the soundtrack on that. I was like, I think in the end I had, I had something like Brian Ferry on in the end. Just I don't know even now that I've got onto that. But <laughs> it was anything but what I was listening to. And um, with these, I mean, I, I did quite enjoy the music. The, the Japanese guy's name I can't pronounce. I, I love that, but I would love to have the, the score that you listened to when you saw this film because I feel like I'm missing out now. Uh, you haven't heard the, the Voices of Light soundtrack? No. Okay. Oh, it's, oh, it's fantastic. It, it, it's just gorgeous. Hopefully, uh, I think Criterion has gotten a hand... Uh, of a different restoration than Massive Cinema, a 4K restoration. This is a 2K restoration from what I remember. Uh, And I think that is in the works. So hopefully we will have a Blu-ray Criterion version with the Voices of uh, Light soundtrack. (laughs) So buy another edition. Yes, (laughs) definitely. (laughs) Oh, great. Um, Did any of you have a chance to read the... uh, it's not really a booklet, it's a book yeah. that comes with this film. I read some of it, yeah. I haven't read all of it, but I mean, it's. I was going to say, actually, in terms of kind of like, as, as packages go, this is one of my all-time favourite Masters of Cinema releases. I think they absolutely mm. nailed it. I don't know if it's because it was the spine number 50 that they kind of went to town on it so much, but that book, yeah. I mean, I've read some of the articles from it, um, and it, it's, yeah, it's well worth the kind of the price alone just for that. Uh, the book was fantastic. I didn't finish reading everything on there, but it was just the choice of who they had commenting on there and the excerpts there. It's it, it's really a fitting package for for this film. I have less experience in Masters of Cinema just because of the region with being in North America. Hmm. Uh, I do have the Sunrise edition, which I think is fantastic, and then the um, Gospel of St. Matthew or a gospel according to Matthew, and which is a really nice restoration, but the packaging isn't at the same level as this. One thing I do miss is some sort of like supplement on the disc itself. 
uh, yes. either some kind of contextualization or a commentary check or something. Uh, I do the uh, Tuberg uh, commentary on the Criterion. That is a really excellent commentary, um, mm-hmm. which I highly recommend to anyone that can get a hold of a Criterion DVD. But um, I, I was sort of missing some sort of visual supplement um, in, in addition to the book itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I mean, given the mind, it's got such an incredible story behind the film. Yeah. I wouldn't mind a bit about, you know, it, it, how it was found and the different versions of it and, 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 and whatnot. I would have, you know, quite enjoyed something like that. And again, it might just come down to a cost value, you know. True. Just a quick word on the picture, though. Actually, you did mention the, the, the restoration. I thought the, the, the picture was absolutely incredible. The actual restoration that has been done. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I watched it. You know, I projected it out on, onto my screen and stuff like that. And I, it was it's absolutely amazing the picture, how good it looks. And uh, yeah, it's, it's one of those. It's, it's one of the best restorations of a silent film that I've ever seen. I think. Yeah, I, I, I just I was thrilled by it, and and I loved the Criterion at the time. But this is it's so remarkable uh, to to be able to see this. And you, one of the things that amazes me about Blu-ray and and, and as a film like this from 1928 is that we're probably seeing it better than anyone's ever seen this. Yeah. Uh, as far as the quality projection that we can do uh, in, in our in our homes, uh, but to have this is is just such a an amazing gift. Uh, it really is. It's phenomenal. Yeah, and we do. We, we live in the age of. And I say to myself, to be a film geeks like stuff, this this is the best time to live in because you know we can get these films in these formats. And I've spoken mm-hmm. of this story ab nauseum where I went to buy Sunrise on Blu-ray, and the bloke in the uh, HMV behind the counter said, "Is there any is there any point in buying films like this on Blu-ray?" And I just looked at him, and I was like, "Shut up! <laughs> There's the money, and shut up!" I, you know, you, you, like, you know, for people like me, this is like manna from heaven to you know to be able to see it. And like, like you say, Joe. Just the, de- the level of detail that's in there, and you never feel that they're kind of trying to kind of artificially spruce up the image too much. It's just you, you're mm-hmm. just, just getting as good as what you could possibly hope for from a film like that. This this film is in the public domain, uh, and I was watching a copy of it on YouTube, Oof. so that just so that I could uh, have on the Voices of Light soundtrack in the background, um, <laughs> even though it didn't sync up quite uh, exactly, it was uh, good enough. But just looking at that version and then seeing the Blu-ray afterwards again, it just made me appreciate it even more and how the image is so pristine and just how yeah how lucky we are to be able to to be able to watch this yeah. And, and you know this is a debate that I was listening to an interview with. Um, uh, haha, I went blank here. Um, you're gonna laugh at me. Pulp Fiction, Quentin Tarantino, <laughs> and he was talking. He was he was talking about the quality of film. You know he he's he's. I, he goes further than I go as far as his responses to digital, but he does talk about the quality of a print having its own characteristics. And so, even though that this this print, this particular edition is pristine, there's this there is a filmic quality to it. There is a there is still a warmness to it that that does feel the way that that a painting does in a sense that there's a little bit of a cracking to it. Mm. That it isn't so artificially glossed over that it feels like like a remaster. It really just feels like a great artistic presentation that also preserves some of the the things that are going to happen within a film so i i I, it just was it has its personality too it doesn't feel like it's been over glossed or over varnished and and that's that's special too because this is a film and it still feels like a film absolutely no totally i completely agree with what you're saying on that one so joe will we be seeing you uh in the podcasting world again 
Uh, <laughs> I would love to. I keep <laughs> flirting with it, and I played back some old episodes that I had one on watching theology with my daughter and realized she was seven, I think, at the time when oh. we listened to this one. And I was like, she said, we should do that again. And so if it will be, I will – if I can bottle up six episodes of something, I'll do like BBC and release. I'll build six episodes. And <laughs> once I have six episodes, I'll release them. But I won't do anything until I have six episodes built. Okay. So I, I would love to again. I, I think my perspectives are a lot different than they were when he did it and uh uh but uh, hopefully there is still something to add but you guys are are doing a great job so i'm I'm so fortunate that you guys are taking on the films that you are such different films too uh si- silent running to to nosferatu what a range no def- oh, thank you for the kind words yeah definitely thank you joe and we're definitely i mean we'll love to have you back as well at some stage yeah. to do another one i think definitely great. and we will have your wife on on a separate show yeah uh, soon yeah brilliant Good, good. Um, so thank you so much for joining us uh, on well, this thank episode. Thank you for having Joe. me. Thank you, Joe. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, Tom, uh, where can we find you online? You can find me on um, 24framescast.blogspot.com. You can find me at 24framescast on Twitter. And you can follow me on um, befriend me on Facebook. I need more friends at the moment. I'm bored of everyone. <laughs> everyone I know is boring me. So if you want to befriend me on Facebook, that'd be really handy. I need to get into other people's lives a little bit more. So brilliant. You can find us at um, mocast.blogspot.com. You can email us at mastersofcinemacast uh, at gmail.com. Uh, and you can also find me on Twitter at T-H-J-O-A, Choa. Uh, and also Masters of Cinemacast uh, at M-O-C underscore cast on Twitter. So um, next episode will be a special year wrap-up episode with uh, Craig Skinner. Um, who was on uh, last year. So that will be interesting going through all the year's releases. Looking forward to that. How far have you gotten in the viewing of uh, all the year's releases, Tom? Um, I'm up to White Dog. I'm on a bit of a panic. I'm on, <laughs> I'm on a bit of a panic of watching <laughs> yeah. the Norton things. I sat there and I, I got them out of the day and I went, next year, I'm gonna, as soon as they come to the post, I'm watching them. But I've got a, <laughs> I've got a long way to go and there's going to be some sleepless nights coming up, but I will get there. Yeah. Uh, I think I'm missing a couple of those uh, early quarter releases, but uh, the rest I'm pretty much caught up to. So, But this has been a, a great episode. Uh, thank you yep. both for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. And until next time, bye. <laughs>